Proverbs chapter 6. Uh, before I pray and we begin, I just want to give uh, a quick shout out. And it's a little easier because uh, he's not here. So uh, one of the things that you all need to appreciate about Pastor Kevin is that he just kind of like helps me out in a lot of little ways. So last week, I knew I was preaching on Proverbs 5. I knew it was going to be a heavy sermon. I knew some of what was going to be um, addressed. And I um, was talking through the sermon with my wife, uh, sharing kind of some of what I had planned on Saturday night. And she said, you may want to think about not having the kids in there. And I thought, oh, she's right. And I texted Kevin after dinner on Saturday and said, hey, could we not have the kids in there? And Kevin, who was leading the service, had to figure out a way, had to figure out something to teach and, and cover. And he just did all of that. And then he had someone let them know. I think Brad helped him out, let them know so he could come back in. It was seamless. It seemed highly intentional. But really, I threw that on Kevin last minute. He fielded it really well. Super gracious. So just thank the Lord for Kevin Moses. Little things like that that you think, man, that was, man, this is all really orchestrated. It's Kevin. Really, truly. So I'm really grateful for the brother. I'm glad he's able to preach up in Vassar. I know he'll do a great job. Thankful for Tom Coy uh, helping to teach the older kids this morning. Uh, let me, uh, again, just pray briefly and then we'll jump into the second half of Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 7 together. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you, even as Tim prayed, that your word speaks to the hard things, the heavy things, the challenging things in life. Father, we pray that you'd help us to feel the weight of this passage and apply its wisdom to our own lives, uh, even today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've sat with a friend after he slept with a prostitute. I walked with him as accountability and encouragement for months, and eventually I stood in his wedding. I later visited him when he was at a residential porn recovery ministry, and I've mourned the now dissolved marriage. I wish that was the only thing that I could say about that. But I've sat across from a friend who was cheating on his wife and was caught. I've gotten a call from a friend who was committing adultery under conviction but scared to tell his wife. I've confronted a friend who was entangled in sin and tempted to hide it from his family. And there are more. Each story is a little bit different. I can think of each of these individuals by name. But there are some similarities. What we talked about last week, I just want you to know, and I trust you could probably say something similar. I've seen... I've seen sin entice and ensnare and, apart from God's grace, destroy. I've walked with couples and I've wept with them. I've gotten the texts and taken the calls. I'll never forget the day several years ago in December where I got two calls in the same day regarding failure in marriage by a friend and an acquaintance. And then there are the many for whom lust and internet pornography has a grip on their lives. So my burden this morning and last week, my burden in, in handling these passages of Scripture, Proverbs 5 last week and Proverbs 6 and 7, this week is to warn and to equip, to share the wisdom of Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, so that you, I don't think there's any exceptions to the you there, so that you, yes, you, would remain faithful wherever the Lord has you, whether single or married, 
This week, we're going to skip over the first part of chapter six. There's some great things in the first part of chapter six. When we get in just a few weeks to covering the rest of Proverbs, kind of thematically, we'll talk about things like laziness. And so we'll go to the ant as chapter six begins uh, and some of these other situations. But we want to talk about the last two talks of the father to the son. He said 10 serious talks. And now we're at number nine and number 10. The last three, just like the second one, touch on the idea, the concept, the danger of sexual sin. So we're going to begin in chapter six, verse 20, all the way down to the end of the chapter. That's talk number nine and then talk number 10 from chapter seven. This morning, I'll have four points. The first four are really brief. Most of the sermon is under the last point, which is chapter seven. Four points now, four words of exhortation, four calls to us from the Father to the Son and from God himself to us, his people. First, choose the path of light and life. Choose the path of light and life. This comes especially from chapter 6, verses 20 through 24. Choose the path of light and life. Notice how he begins it's, it's almost a formula. We've seen it before, right? My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. He begins Keep them, store them. We could say guard them. Forsake them not. Don't turn away from them. Your parental instruction regarding life, the way of wisdom, the skill of living that your parents under the fear of the Lord have given you. Remember it. Keep it. Internalize it. Make it your own. Verse two, he says, or sorry, I keep thinking I'm starting a chapter here. Verse 21, he says, bind, tie. Make wisdom's values your values in your heart. Shape your affections. Shape the priorities of your life, your longings, your aspirations, your dreams by God's word. Notice the result. The result is absolutely beautiful in verse 22. Uh, It's really kind of a, a moving scene here. Internalized parental wisdom will lead you. It will watch over you. It will talk with you. It's like a personal shepherd. The care that this wisdom, this instruction from your parents can have even later in life. When you're outside of the home, you can remember that your God-fearing parents, as they instructed you in line with God's word, were serving you. So their voice can continue to instruct you even when they're no longer with you physically or maybe even have passed on. Notice verse 23. Here's the reason. Here's the grounds, at least initially. They are light and life. This description of wisdom and how we should respond to it, parental wisdom, echoes the description that we find in Deuteronomy 6 and elsewhere of God's wisdom. So this is not saying that, okay, parents, if you tell your kids, you know, jump on one foot and turn around three times, they better... That's God. No, no, no. But it is saying, man, a parent who fears the Lord, their instruction is in line with God's word. 
So not every father's wisdom is perfect. It's not right 100% of the time. But every father's wisdom should reflect God's word, which is perfect and is right 100% of the time. So children are to obey their parents. And parents, not off the hook here, they're to reflect God's wisdom in what they require of their children. And then here the application comes, just like we saw back in verse in chapter 2, just like we saw in chapter 5. It has a purpose. Verse 24, to preserve you from the evil woman. We met her back in chapter 2 initially. From the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Preserve. To keep. Smooth words. We'll come back to those under our fourth, fourth point. So what's the exhortation? Choose the path of light and life. Don't take the path to her house. Take the path to wisdom. Look at the second half of verse 23. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life. This is a theme in the book of Proverbs. We don't hear warnings and despise them. Rather, we receive the discipline that corrects. doesn't just punish, it corrects. It forms us. It disciplines us. Like stakes on a tree, like training wheels on a bike. It helps us stay on the narrow way. If we were to summarize these first few verses, we would we would want to to use the verbs maybe as bookends. So verse 20, keep verse 24, preserve. We can put it this way. Guard the teaching and the teaching will guard you. Guard the teaching, prize the teaching and the teaching will protect you. Protect God's wisdom in your heart and God's wisdom will protect you in all of life. So choose the right path, son. Choose the right path, brother or sister in Christ, friend. Guard the teaching of wisdom, the wisdom of God's word and the wisdom of God's word. The teaching will guard you. Point number two, moving right along. Point number two, guard your heart for true beauty. Guard your heart for true beauty. Look at verse 25. Similar to what we saw back in chapter five, verse eight, we have the command there. It was keep your way from far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Here it is. Do not desire. Do not desire. Six twenty five her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eye lashes. Point number two, guard your heart for true beauty. Last week, we talked a little bit about avoiding sin and how that looks like avoiding temptation. This week, the passage takes us kind of further upstream. Do not desire her beauty. Do guard your heart from her allure and for true beauty. So the wise father knows, okay, um, Obedience to the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Begins with obedience to the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet. That makes sense, right? That's what he's saying, right? So he's he's not just saying, okay, yeah, the key is stay out of her bedroom. No, the key is don't desire to go in her bedroom, right? You see, you see the difference, right? So it's not just don't commit adultery. It's do not covet. Do not lust. 
Do not crave someone who is not your wife. Do not reduce true beauty to physical looks. True beauty in Scripture begins always with the fear of the Lord. So it's a strength of character that runs deep and wide throughout all areas of life. I think we could put it this way. Young men. A truly beautiful woman can and will become more beautiful as she ages. The godly beauty you see when you meet her is supported by a promise. God will complete the good work he's begun by his grace in her life. So true beauty doesn't fade. It gets deeper as she becomes more godly, more mature. So the father isn't calling his son to to give up a desire for beauty. No, he's calling his son to desire a better, deeper beauty. He says, do not let her capture you because he's already said, be captured by another, by the beauty of your own godly wife. Point number three, point number three. No, no, K-N-O-W, no The cost of sexual sin. This is verses 26 down to verse 35. He's already made this point and he's making it again. He wants us to get this. Um, So when I see things repeated in scripture, I usually and I think rightfully think to myself, boy, we must be thick headed here. We need this. Know the cost of sexual sin. So he he gives the command, guard your heart for true beauty. Verse 26, don't desire her beauty in your heart. And then he gives the reason, know the cost. And I think there's three main reasons. Let me give them to you briefly. Let me show you them in the text next. First, the price is high. Second, the punishment is certain. Third, repayment can't be made. Know the cost of sexual sin. First, the price is high. Look at verse 26. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. So the father isn't comparing in order to commend prostitution. That would be to miss the point. Any more than comparing it with thieves later is to commend stealing. That's not the point at all. But he's highlighting the high cost of adultery, a precious life. He's going to come back to this later. Look down at verse 23 of chapter 7. He does not know that it will cost him what? His life. The price is high. Your life. Notice also that the punishment is certain. Verses 27 through 29. We could put it this way. You're not the exception. You will be burned. Let's read the passage beginning in verse 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? What's the answer? No, right? Some of you are saying, yeah, no, you can't do that. It's like super obvious, right? No. Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? You're thinking, well, I did see that video. No, no, the answer is no, right? No. You can't, you don't do that. You hold the fire at arm's length. You don't walk barefooted on coals. Look at verse 29. Here's the takeaway. 
the father is saying, let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf. So it is. So is he, rather, who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. The punishment is certain. Third, under, second, under our third point here, repayment can't be made. Here we have an interesting kind of retelling. He contrasts with a thief, right? The thief is hungry. He's stealing. Think of the orphan Oliver. Has a legitimate desire for food. It's wrong. He will be punished. He will be asked to make repayment. It will cost him everything. But he can make repayment. Not so with the adulterer. Look at verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he is caught, he will repay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Wounds and dishonor will he get. And his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Restitution can't be made for indulging illegitimate desires. The context here is the the, the spouse who has been sinned against. What is Solomon saying? The damage to the fabric of a marriage Damage to the fabric of a family, of a society, of adultery, is too great. So know the cost. It's interesting, as I'm studying Proverbs 5 through 7, one of the things that strikes me the most is that there's little hope given. Just be honest. It's almost all warning. And we can sit here, maybe you've been sitting and, and thinking, man... It's too much. The cost is high. The consequences are significant. I can't make up for the wrong that I've done. What hope is there? Friends, we have to zoom out and the hope is found in Jesus. It's not too simple of an answer, is it? The hope is found in Christ. There can be cleansing and restoration and renewal and purity. There can be a new shaping of new desires and new affection. There can be walking in holiness in a way that truly does honor the Lord. I want to commend one resource to you. It's there in the bulletin. Uh, It's uh, a, a sermon. It's also a chapter. So you can listen to it or watch it or you can read it. But it's a sermon by the late David Paulison addressing those who are sexually broken, those who are broken by sin, especially in this area. If that's you, I want to commend that resource to you. That's not the sermon. Uh, it's not the series through Proverbs, but it's the rest of the story. It's the hope that the gospel offers to those who are broken, not only by their sin, but also by its consequences. I want to get now to chapter, or to point number four. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Point number four, learn from a story. Learn from a story of sin and seduction. Learn from a story of sin and seduction. The father has done a lot of teaching and he's introduced this 
this off-limits woman, this evil woman, sure. But then he's also commended Lady Wisdom. He's going to do that again here. He's going to do it again when we get to chapter 9. But here, he kind of slows it down and says, okay, maybe the final appeal to my son isn't going to be, don't do this, do that. Isn't going to be simply, stay away, don't desire. It's going to be a story. He uses a narrative, a story, I think likely a true story of something that he has observed. He's going to take us to a place where he's looking from afar in the evening and he's seeing a young man and he's seeing a woman and he's going to play out the narrative. And the naivety of the man is turned up to 10, right? And, and the character of the woman as she entices is turned up to 10. Everything is a little over the top so that we would get the point of the story. So we wouldn't miss it. So the subtlety that we experience when we go out into the world and that temptation doesn't seem so brightly bad, so clearly wrong, we can be reminded of a story like this. It can shape us and our desires and our affection and our worldview so that when we go out there, we begin to see, oh, I've seen that before. That smells off. That doesn't seem right. So his last story Or his last lesson really is a story. That's why I began with a few stories from my own life. I'll say, just as a a man, few things have served me as greatly as warnings, as stories of seeing the wreckage and, and just, by God's grace, choosing another path. And Solomon says, we we need that kind of warning. We need that kind of story. I want to look at the story in six parts. Six kind of sub points. But I think if you think points, I don't want you to miss the story. It is a story through and through. First, you have, again, a call to learn. A call to learn. So verse 1, verse 2, we've seen that before. He says, treat it as the most uh, sensitive part of your soul, internalize it like the apple of your eye, bind it, write it, internalize it, know it, take it with you into every situation, onto every website. Notice verse four, the call to learn is really a, a call to have a relationship with Lady Wisdom, right? Have a relationship with a different kind of woman. Woman, wisdom. Look at verse four. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend. So learn wisdom, internalize wisdom, take wisdom with you, enter into a relationship with wisdom. Pursue that woman, lady wisdom. He'll tell more, talk more about her in next week's sermon, chapter nine. That's part one, the call What's the point? We saw this several times before. Verse five, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. She's off limits and she's enticing. Part two of the story. Now we have the unguarded victim. Now, this man sins and I'm hesitant to use the word victim. I I actually didn't use the word victim until I read further in the chapter and Solomon uses the word victim. Right. Right. And by victim here, we don't mean innocent. 
we mean he was hunted and he was killed. Victim. Right. And he is un. Guarded. We talked about this before, way back at the beginning of Proverbs, right? The simple man is the uncommitted man. He stands before the choices of life and he has not chosen wisdom yet. The two paths still remain in front of him. He is uncommitted to the right or to the left. He is simple, he is naive, and he is vulnerable. He is unguarded because he is uncommitted. Look at verse 6. Father here, for at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths a young man. He cuts right to the chase. He's lacking sense. This boy is a fool. Right? He's lacking sense. More particularly, though, he is simple. He is naive. We don't know his motives or lack of motives. As we keep reading, it seems that he's believing the lie of anonymity. No one will know my search history. No one will know where I go online or here. It's night. No one can see who I am. No one will know that I've left and I've gone. Look at verse 8. Passing along the streets near her corner. It's the opposite of what we found in 5.8. Keep far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Passing along the streets near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. So we have a call to learn. We have an unguarded victim, uncommitted to the way of wisdom. He has not internalized the message. He has not heeded seven, one through four. Tie, bind, write, know, keep. He's someone who has not guarded wisdom. And so wisdom is not guarding him here. He is vulnerable. And then we have third part of this story of sin and seduction. We have the bold pursuer. The bold pursuer. At this point, I I do want to open a little bit of a can of worms. And... As what happens when you open cans of worms, you don't always have the opportunity to squish all the worms. But I think what we can do is say some helpful things by way of observation from this passage on the topic of immodesty. Immodesty. I want to just make two points about immodesty from verses 10 through 12. It's not all the Bible teaches. It's not all that I would teach. But I think these are two important observations. First, immodesty is a matter first of the heart. Immodesty is a matter first of the heart. So there is in her, this woman, this bold pursuer, an intention to seduce and persuade and compel. Interestingly, none of those are used to describe her dress. All of those are used to describe her words. Her tongue, her words are immodest, we would say. We don't know what verse 10 means, not in any detail. For behold, the woman meets him, and here's the phrase, dressed as a prostitute. But given what we know about her immodest words, looking down at verse 21, we aren't surprised to read at the end of verse 10 that she is wily of heart. This can be translated cunning of heart. Or with a crafty intent. 
So her motives aren't neutral, but they also aren't unknown. Again, this is a story. We're told her motives. We're told that her heart, uh, about her heart in a way that we often can't see in life. Right? Look around. Say, you don't know motives. Here we know motives. And so whatever dressed as a prostitute means, the goal is seduction. So here's the point. Her words and her dress merely reflect her heart. It is wily. It is cunning. It is crafty. So we could flip it the other way and note that modesty then is also a matter first of the heart. So looking good, looking beautiful, looking sharp, and looking for looks are not the same thing. Even if they wear the same clothes. Dressing for the purpose of attracting attention reflects an immodest heart. Obviously, dressing to seduce or arouse or gain glances is immodest. Immodesty is a matter first of the heart. I think we see that by implication here in the passage. But second observation, immodesty is inappropriate. Immodesty is inappropriate. Look again at verses 11 and 12. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. It seems then, from this little bit of context, that whatever the details of dressed as a prostitute, this is not how a woman should dress. Outside of her house, outside of her bedroom. So I think this category of inappropriate and appropriate is really helpful and important. And I want to just linger over it for a minute and then we're going to move on with the six stops in our story here. So modesty is saying, acting, dressing in ways appropriate to the setting. Immodesty is saying or acting or dressing in ways inappropriate to the setting. Obviously, culture is part of this. We have to be honest about that. But we shouldn't start with culture, especially in our culture, which is so sexualized. So Christians examine their hearts, but they also ask questions like, what is the purpose of this setting? Do my words, do my actions, do my clothing fit that purpose? Am I dressed appropriately? So immodesty can be rooted in a heart to entice and allure, but it can also be rooted in a culture, a parental and really culture wide failure to teach and value appropriateness. Uh, I was uh, watching something on, I don't remember if it was Nickelodeon or Disney with my kids. We were watching a show which we approved of, but then in between they had like these ads for themselves. That makes sense. Like it was an ad for the channel. And uh, the whole song was like throw off categories of appropriateness or inappropriateness. It's like I'm going to do whatever I want to do and no one should restrict me. And here I'm saying we should restrict ourselves. This is a this is a good this is a good thing. So uh, immodesty can be rooted and a desire to seduce, sure. But it also can be rooted in just a failure to have these categories. So I want to suggest that immodesty can simply be inappropriate without a heart of seduction. 
So fathers need to be able to say to their daughters, that is not appropriate without impinging motives. We could broaden this, right? Flashy at a funeral is immodest. It's not because more skin is showing or something like that. A hoodie at a funeral is immodest. That's what I'm getting at. Broader categories of immodesty. So our culture has lost this category of dress. Um, This isn't in my notes. And if this is you, in a sense, I have no judgment, but I am judging you. Here we go. So when people talk about and they'll make fun of this online, which I don't necessarily approve of. But when people talk about, you know, the people that go to Walmart wearing their PJs. No, very few are saying they're immodest. Most are saying it's just not appropriate, right? I'm using that broader definition. I'm saying that's a, that is actually immodesty. They don't know what's appropriate. They've lost the valuing of, of that. Let me get a bit more practical. And here, I think my two points about immodesty will overlap, in case you're forgetting, as I'm in sub-sub points at this point. Immodesty is first a matter of the heart. Immodesty is inappropriate. So what is appropriate in the bedroom isn't appropriate outside the bedroom at the pool. What is appropriate for swimming or exercise may not be appropriate outside of the pool or gym around town. What is appropriate around town may not be appropriate to gather to worship a risen Christ on Sunday morning. In each setting, it's immodest because it doesn't fit where it is. Even if the culture says anything goes anywhere. Look back at our passage. The issue, there's a lot we don't know, but the issue isn't simply what she is wearing, but why she is wearing it and where she is wearing it. Do you see that? It's not just what, it's actually where and why. She isn't in her room with her husband, but outside her home seeking the attention of not her husband. Notice again, verse 10. She is a bold Pursuer. She meets him. She's pursued him. Her words and her dress are part of her boldness. Fourth part of this story now. The seductive tactics. The seductive tactics. Notice them. I think they're fairly obvious. They're somewhat over the top. Look at verse 13. First comes shock. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, right? Notice how it starts with a kind of shock. And then here comes the story beginning in verse 14. I have to offer sacrifices today. I have paid my vows. There seems to be some sort of religious veneer. We don't know if this is an Israelite woman or a Canaanite woman. This is a pagan or not. But there's a backstory. She's given the backstory. There's a veneer of religion. And then the flattery comes. So now I have come out to meet you. To seek you eagerly. And I have found you. All this is for me, he thinks. Temptation tells you, you are wanted. You are valued. It gives you attention. He notices me. She notices me. Notice how sensual the promise is. The feel, the smell, 
There's coverings on the couch. There's linens. There's perfume. There's the shock. There's the backstory. There's the flattery. And now comes the appeal. Verse 18. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. The ask is bold and direct and in context, very enticing. Right after it comes the reassurance. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. She doesn't say, this is right. This is just. This is holy. She says, we won't get caught. We need the wisdom of Proverbs to, uh, uh, to inform our consciences long before these moments that promise anonymity. So the category is, this isn't right. Period. That's the standard for purity. This is not right. So getting away with sin isn't a category Christians need to operate with. In fact, we know that the sin we could get away with may be the most dangerous sin. Because one leads to two and two leads to three and suddenly it's a habit and then a destiny. Friends, where have you shifted from? Is this right? To will anyone know in your own conscience? After the tactics comes the kill. Look at verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. First we see her sin, then we see his sin, then we see his surprise. Her sin is one of seduction and persuasion and then compulsion. His sin, you see it there at the beginning of verse 22, all at once he follows her. The lust and the choice are his. Seduction is hers, but make no mistake, he could have said no. He didn't need to be uncommitted and unguarded. He could have chose the way of wisdom before the moment of temptation. He could have avoided not just the sin, but the temptation himself. He could have committed his heart to wisdom, but he hasn't. He's happy to remain naive and wander outside at night. If he had guarded instruction, that instruction would have guarded him right here, and it didn't. Instead, all at once, he goes in. He follows her. As we said last week, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences of your sin. And this father says the consequences for this kind of sin are high. Note now the surprise. He does not know that it will cost him his life. He gives three examples, all of animals that are trapped. It's too late and it's deadly. It costs them their lives. One of the first things I think of when I get the call or receive the text, whatever the situation, and each one's different, 
So that, man, this is not going to be the same. That marriage is not going to be the same. The Lord can give so much grace and can bring so much healing. And he can restore and renew. But boy, can't go back. So note now the final call. Verses 24 through 27. All things we've heard before. Keep your heart. Verses 24, 25. End of verse 25. Choose your path. Internalize. Believe. Trust. Accept. Commit. Now. Today. Make a covenant with your eyes. Today. Don't believe the lie. You're not the exception. Remember the cost. It's still very high. As I mentioned earlier, what's perhaps most striking for me as I study this passage, this is true in much of wisdom, is that God's not mentioned here. Not directly. But God's intentions are. And don't forget where wisdom always begins. It begins with the fear of the Lord. So friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, if Christ isn't weighty and central to your life, if he isn't significant to you, if you've never committed yourself to him and to enter into his way of wisdom, into a relationship, we might say, with lady wisdom, if you've never internalized the Bible's teaching regarding the good gift of sex and its rightful place, you are a sitting duck for sin in this sexualized, sensualized culture. And your little efforts of avoidance and small denials will never lead to lasting purity in this day and age. It just won't. You will find yourself stuck on the treadmill of try, fail, try again. Unless you take the warnings of our passage and the teaching of wisdom as a whole, and you begin with the fear of the Lord, that he might be central and weighty in your heart, in your life. So you use prayer and you use the word of God and you use good preaching and then you bring accountability and books and resources like we're recommended in the bulletin last week and this week. And you use those things to say, by your grace, may you have some weight at the center of my life. This illustration has been used before and it's been so helpful for me and may it serve you. Our lives are like a solar system. And at the center of the solar system is the sun. And unless the sun is in the center of the solar system, the planets will not stay in orbit. They will fly off into space. They will bump into each other. And unless Christ is central in your life, your sexuality will never be secondary and sweet. It will fly off. It will not stay in its proper place. And if you try to use little space shuttles of denial and accountability, as helpful as those things are, to keep a planet in orbit, you will find they do not have enough size. They do not have enough power. 
It takes the fear of the Lord. It takes spiritual gravitas in your life and in your soul to keep all the planets of life, whether time or money or friends or relationship or sexuality, in their proper place. So then wisdom says, then wisdom says, yeah, let's have some strategies for avoiding temptation. Yeah, let's remove access. Let's remove anonymity and let's starve the appetite of your flesh. Then we can talk about sanctification. But if sanctification is going to be effort and reform based and not God centered, it will fail. It will not last. You might have a good month, but you will not persevere in purity. And I say that to call you to Christ. To call you to use sermons and prayer and the word and resources and friends and this church and your pastors to help you keep him central and weighty. It is your only hope. And by God's grace, you can know this kind of purity. You can know this kind of perseverance in purity. You can know faithfulness. And fruitfulness and boldness because your conscience is clear before God and man. That's God's call to you. Call to himself. So friend, maybe that's you. Maybe you need to get serious and get help. Maybe you need to reach out to myself or someone else, Christian friend in this church. Go back to last week. Maybe you need to begin Say yes, because I love the Lord and he is weighty and central in my life. I'm going to begin removing anonymity online and in relationships. I'm going to begin removing access and I'm going to begin to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I'm going to starve my appetite for sexual sin and I'm going to do that. And it will be worth it because he is central and weighty. Let me pray for you. Father God, we ask that you would help us to know. To know you. That we would not live like the Gentiles who who live according to their lust, who do not know you. But that we would know you and fear you. And then that fear would keep us on the path away from the edge of the cliff. That that knowledge of you, central and weighty at the center of the solar system of our lives, would keep the planets in their right place. Secondary and sweet. Father, we pray for those here this morning. Who are broken by sin. Father I pray that they would not believe the lie that they have to clean themselves up before they come to you. But Father would they come to you in repentance and faith. And then out of your forgiving grace. Pursue purity with renewed effort and vigor. Father I pray for those here this morning whose hearts are fundamentally immodest. Father, who have lost the category of appropriateness, 
pray that you would help us to think wisely, not not culturally, but wisely about what we say and how we act and what we wear. Father, we we pray that you would strengthen marriages through this wisdom. We pray that you would preserve marriages and even future marriages through wisdom in this area. Father, as we look to next week and we continue to think through wisdom in other areas of life, would we not move past this, but remain in it? Father, we ask that you would cultivate in our hearts a weightiness and a centrality that would keep us from evil. Father, we love you and we ask all of this for our good and your glory in Christ's name.